still doing characteristics of Christ. This time we're going to be looking at the atonement. And of course, in order to have the atonement occur, you have to have the incarnation. So we're going to talk about this. Let's open with a word of prayer. Almighty Lord, our God and Savior, how great you are. Lord, you are the Most High and the Almighty. You are sovereign over the whole universe. As we come to you this Advent season, help us to remember your Son, Jesus, who came down from heaven to be with us. Send your Holy Spirit to stir our hearts. Lord Jesus, our God and Savior, we thank you for this day. We thank you for all the gifts you give us. We ask for wisdom in our decisions. Give us that wisdom and discernment. Lord, we look at your word today. Free us to believe your word, your truth, to hold fast to what your servants who have communicated your very words to us handed down all these years. Lord, sometimes your truth is difficult for us and it causes difficulties in our lives. Lord, we, are no, we know you are working to make us into the image of your Son. Holy Spirit, enable us to trust in Jesus, who is our salvation, and to believe the word spoken of and by him under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, given, breathed out by God, and here written down by your servants. Jesus, as we think about your birth to Mary this season, let us remember that night. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. It's almost Christmas. We're going to talk about why the atonement was necessary and also how that leads us to the necessity of the incarnation. For Jesus, the one true God, the only Son of God, the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, the Great I Am, Yahweh, to come down to become wholly human, wholly finite, to live in one of these packages, that's, that's pretty mind-blowing. You, you realize, of course, that in Islam, in the Quran, it actually says that God cannot come down to be a man. And, and they somehow put this limitation on the God of the universe. Stop and think about that for a minute, okay? <laughs> and, and you're telling God what he can't do. And I find that just a little presumptuous. And he comes down, he's wholly limited, all while still being holy God, and all this was necessary to pay for our sins. Jesus had to live an exemplary life and die on a cross to save us, to redeem us. And for Jesus to do those things, Jesus first had to be born as a helpless infant baby to a human mother. I was reviewing this week's verses and started comparing different translations that I have. I dig out every Bible that I had in our house. So I had nine of them stacked up. I have 14 Bibles. Some are multiple, you know, multiple of the same translation. So I only had nine stacked up and I was going through each. And uh, this rapidly leads to a, a rabbit hole where I'm looking at the history of English translations. 
Of the five great languages in the history of redemption, English is probably the fourth most important. Hebrew and Greek would be first, obviously, and third would be Latin, and then English and German. And it's funny, as I'm reading this, how clear it becomes that it's the, the English and the Germans that were the rabble-rousers in all of this, that, that were creating headaches for Rome. Two ancient texts um, need to be recognized. And they're, they're, they are the Septuagint, which was the translation of the entire Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. And the reason that the, the Jews did this was to be able to communicate in the common language of the time, which was Greek. And so they translate the entire Old Testament into Greek so that everyone could read them. And when the priest would stand up and, and open the scroll and read from the scroll, it was something that was easily understood by the people. So this was about 200 BC, 200 years before Jesus comes that the scribes went and did this. The other one is about 600 years later, 400 years after Christ has come, and there's another translation, and that's called the Vulgate. And this one, they take the Hebrew and the Greek, and they translate them into Latin. And an amazing thing happens at about this time. So this is 400 A.D. By 500 A.D., the Bible, or portions of it anyway, have been translated into about 500 languages and spread over most of the world, the civilized world at that time. And in 600 AD, the Church of Rome decrees that no Bible can be translated unless it is only translated and transmitted in Latin. Latin only. Which by this time is already a dead language. So the only ones who are educated in Latin are the priests. And this is the way that the church holds on to its power. You can see the, th the wheels turning already. How somehow it goes from being, let's get this out there so the most number of people who hear about it can read it and understand it. And all of a sudden, in about two, over the course of about 200 years, it becomes to, no, we don't want anybody to read this except our people to retain the power. Fascinatingly, one of the things I find out is the Apocrypha, which is something that we don't have in our, our, our current Bibles. Up until 1880, the Apocrypha was included with every translation of the Bible. And there were 80 books in their if you include the Apocrypha, you end up with about 80 books. There's one that blew me away, and I didn't realize this until I'm pawing around on all this. There was actually a book that came after Revelation, and it's John's letter to the church of Laodicea. And uh, it's fascinating to read. It's included in Wycliffe's translation, which is one that I have. And so I, I spent like a day and a half just reading this, this letter to the Church of Lycia. And it's like, oh yeah, I need to actually work on my message this week and not worry about this other stuff that I am just happen to be fascinated with along the way.
Okay. So, these were early attempts to put the Word of God into a common language that people would understand. Latin dies as a viable language, but the church holds on to it, and then it becomes a point of contention where only the priest can translate the Word of God to the common people. And this is from about 600 A.D. to about 1400 A.D. And there's a particular name for this particular medieval period. We call it the Dark Ages. And the reason it's called the Dark Ages is because the understanding is controlled by the wrong people. So here come the rabble-rousers, okay? It turns out that in about 995 AD, there's an Anglo version. You can't really call it English. It's a very, very early version of English. It's completely unintelligible to anybody today. Nobody speaks it. it it's, it's completely not understandable. And this is a version of the New Testament, 995 AD. The next step that comes along is in the middle 1300s, there's an Englishman who walks around and he translates from Latin to English. And he writes out verses on a piece of paper and he hands it to the common people. And they can carry around these verses. Well, he decides to take it upon himself to translate the entire Bible from Latin, from the Vulgate, into English. The man's name is John Wycliffe. He dies in 1384 before he completes the translation of the entire Bible. He's done over two-thirds of it. Maybe about 70% of the Bible is translated in English. Two of his students finish the work, and about five years after he dies, they publish the first English version Bible. And it's published under their teacher's name, John Wycliffe. Rome is so outraged by this, they find where Wycliffe is buried, they dig him up, they burn the body at the stake, and they throw the ashes into the river. This happens multiple times in this, in this period, by the way, to various people. So about 60, 70 years after Wycliffe dies, there's a German who figures out that if you put movable type into a, a press and hold it together, and then you stamp that on ink, and then you can stamp that on a page, and then you can do this over and over and over again. And then you can assemble all the pages, and it's called the printing press. And the guy's name is Johann Gutenberg. And you've all heard of the Gutenberg Bible. By the way, that translation is in Latin, so it's okay with the church. But these are the first, he, he does the first 12 Bibles. And, and these are from 1453. There's a couple of those that still exist from the very first set of 12 that were, that were published. There, there is, from the second set, and I think there were 50 that were done in the second set, the Library of Congress has one out of the second set of 50. It's, it's in the Library of Congress. When it opens up again after all this virus thing blows over, you're in Washington, D.C., go to the Library of Congress. They have it on display. 
you can see this, this Bible that they have. Okay. So then, you go another 60 years after Gutenberg. There's a Dutch theologian who goes by the name Erasmus, and he publishes a Greek and Latin interlinear New Testament. So all of a sudden, and, and he has access to ancient texts, and he is able to publish this interlinear. And this is the very first interlinear that comes up, where you can actually read the Latin and the, the original language, the Greek, right beside, side by side. And you can see how well the translation is doing compared to the original language. One year later, there's a German priest who puts 95, he calls it 95 theses, and he nails it to the door of the church in Wittenberg. And this is reputed to happen on October 31st, 1516. The guy's name is Martin Luther. Ten years later, Luther publishes a complete New Testament in German. Okay? So now he's really in your face to the Pope. And all of a sudden, the German people have an entire New Testament that they can read in their own language. Then the, the British get involved. William Tyndall, 1526, complete New Testament in English. Ten years after that, one of his students, Miles Coverdale, publishes a complete Bible. Old Testament, New Testament, and the Apocrypha in English. And uh, the New Testament, by the way, is Tyndall's New Testament. Tyndall is burned at the stake in 1536. Three years after he is killed for having published the New Testament in English, the English king declares that there needs to be an English an official English translation of the Bible, and it flips. And so this man is burned at the stake for doing exactly what the king decrees is the right thing to do three years later. 1539. 1539, that year, the English Great Bible is published. This part cracks me up. There's a huge Bible. And there were enough of them printed so that each church in England could have one. And they were chained to the pulpit so that the common people could come and read them. And they're called the Chain Bible. That's their slang name. And, and some of these actually still exist with the chain still hanging off the corner. They're called the Chain Bible. Shortly after that, the Geneva Bible comes out, which is actually an English translation. And then 1611, the king of England has an authorized version published. And we know that as the King James Version. And that's the one that we still have today. You can still find copies of that version and read it. Of course, the colonies get involved at about this time there's the first printing of an American Bible, an American translation, and the American Standard Version comes out in 1901. 
There's a revised standard version in 1952 and the New American Standard Bible in 1971. I didn't realize it was that recent. The NASB, to me, is one of the best translations, word for word, from the original language. The language is awkward. 2002, that gets fixed. And that's the ESV that most of you are holding in your lap. All of this is in the history of redemption. Counter to these word-for-word -word translations are what are called dynamic equivalents in the translations. Like the Living Bible from 1971 and the NIV, the New International Version, 1973, which are meant to give a meaning-for-meaning -meaning translation. And I always felt we lost something along that by doing that. Because those ancient names and traditions had meanings. And you can't dig that out if it's just translated meaning for meaning. So all this goes on, and I, I, meanwhile, in the back of my mind, I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do about atonement. By the way, Grudem, his old version, he has 40 pages on the atonement, the new version, and he threw about half of that away and rewrote it. Um, so the new one is about almost 50 pages long. So it's like Grudem was no help. So I had to go to my two study Bibles, my NASB and my ESV, and look up what they had to say about the atonement. That's actually what you're going to get this morning. Okay. Long, complicated story to get us here. Come on. There we go. So, atonement. We're using a $20 word. We use it because it's very encompassing of, very se of several pieces. Some people view it only as the work of what Christ did on the cross, his dying to complete salvation. There's an argument that says it's more than that. Because Christ sacrifices long before he gets to the cross by becoming a human, by living in this mortal, finite envelope. He chooses to live as a human. It's not that he doesn't still have the power where he can command all the hosts of heaven. He has that power, but he chooses not to do that. You can actually see this in the temptations of Christ, where Satan says, throw yourself down, for the angels will not allow you to be injured. And Jesus' reply is, do not tempt the Lord your God. And so Christ is making the point that he could choose to do this, but he chooses not to so that he can live as you and I live, as a finite, limited human being, as though he were a created creature, just as we are. So Christ has sacrificed even right up front from the very time he, he is born he sacrifices who he is and the comforts of what he deserves to reign in heaven. And so there's his entire life that he lives that is also a sacrifice that should be considered as part of the atonement as well. 
So you stop and think about that sacrifice of Jesus, forgetting his rightful position in heaven. Is that not work that Jesus did for our salvation? Is this not rightfully a part of the complete history of redemption? Atonement also has this meaning behind it as a reconciliation between alienated parties. It's a restoration of that broken relationship. The atonement makes amends for wrongdoing. It heals broken promises. It resolves offenses and pays for the wrongs that have been committed. We use other words for this as well, like redemption or salvation or propitiation. Each of these has a different approach and brings different pieces to the complete work of what Jesus does for us. We know deep down in ourselves that we all sin. Scripture confirms this for us. We have committed sin because we are sinful by nature. It's not that we are sinful because we sin. It's the other way around. We are all sinful by nature, and we have all rebelled against our Creator. It is in the nature of God to hate sin. So, there's a huge machine gun of verses that are coming. I don't expect you to catch all of them, okay? So, Jeremiah 44, 4. Jeremiah chapter 44, verse 4. Yet I persistently sent you to all my servants, the prophets, saying, Oh, do not do this abomination that I hate. God hates sin. And that's the, the lesson we're, we're going for here. Habakkuk 1, 1.13. Most of you can't find it. I couldn't find it. I had to look up where it was in the Bible. Okay, Habakkuk 1.13. You who are purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? And it is this righteousness of God that makes it necessary to punish sin. There's a punishment that must be exist for sin. Psalms 5, 4 to 6. Psalms 5, 4 to 6. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Romans 1.18. Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So here we have the sinful cannot have fellowship with God unless atonement is made somehow. That sin requires judgment and punishment. Anything that we do will only add to our sin burden. That our worship and adoration of God is incomplete and insufficient, again, only makes what we do worse. This is Proverbs 15.8. Proverbs 15.8. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. But the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. There is no way or path for us to restore ourselves to God's righteousness. It's not possible. It cannot be done. 
There's nothing that we can do to make our situation better with God. I'm going to give you three verses that confirm this. Job 15, 14 to 16. Job 15, 14 to 16. What is man that he can be pure? Or he who is born to a woman that he can be righteous? Behold, God puts no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less one who is abominable and corrupt, a man who drinks injustice like water. Isaiah 64, 6. Isaiah 64, 6. We have all become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Romans 10, 2-3. Romans 10, 2-3. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. All of this tells us that we, as people, as humans, there is no hope. Against this worldly despair, there is no possible path to God. But God offers his path to his righteousness through the death of his own son, Jesus. Scripture reveals the grace, the mercy, and the glorious righteousness of God to us. God provides the atonement for us. And this is perfect and complete. It is totally a gift that we are able to reconcile with God. If you look at the scripture from the beginning in Genesis to the end of Revelation the grace mercy and love of God is displayed in all its breathtaking beauty and power and glory God frees his chosen people the Hebrews out of their slavery to Egypt God establishes a covenant relationship with a system of sacrifices that had at its very core the death and shedding of blood of animals to make atonement. Leviticus 17.11 Leviticus 17.11 For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. These sacrifices were meant to be substitutionary. That is, they were a substitute for the sacrifice God demands in payment for our sins. The implication here is clear. It is we that should suffer the fate that the animals are suffering. But at the same time, we know that in no real or complete way can the sacrifice of any animal pay for the sins of a human. And at the same time, we see this as a type in that the sacrifice points forward to something that is greater. And the Hebrews did not know what that was. 
And I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Angels are finite in an odd sort of way as well. They're heavenly beings, but they have a sense of time. And God did not reveal his plan to them either. And so they did not understand what was necessary to complete the atonement. And I can show you why we can infer that in a little bit here. Hebrews 10.4. Hebrews 10.4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The letter to the Hebrews is telling the Hebrew people that you'd practice this over and over, but you can't atone for your sins by doing this. This is telling you that there's something else that's coming. It is only the blood of Jesus who pays for all the sins of all believers that can atone for us. Romans 3, 25 to 26. Romans 3, 25 to 26. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins it was, able, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. <coughs> this whole passage relies heavily on Hebrews and Romans, that there's this beautiful way that it's all laid out in there. Romans 4, 3 to 8. Romans 4, 3 to 8. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Indeed. Hebrews 9, 11 to 15. Hebrews 9, 11 to 15. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sanctity of the purification of the flesh, how much more will be the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. In the New Testament, we see clearly that Jesus' death is a sacrifice. Romans 
whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? Paul's letter to the Ephesians 1, 7. Ephesians 1, 7. We ha- in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the richness of his grace. Jesus redeems the people of God by means of paying the ransom, his own death on a cross. By paying this penalty, Jesus frees us from the slavery to sin and absolves us from all guilt. Romans, Romans 3.24 Romans 3.24 And we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is Christ Jesus. Galatians 4.4. Galatians 4.4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Colossians 1.14. Colossians 1.14. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. By Jesus' death, God reconciles us to himself, overcoming the penalty and the wrath that is due us that our own sins provoked. Romans 5.10. Romans 5.10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Colossians 1, 20 to 22. Colossians 1, 20 to 22. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Christ's death on the cross satiated God's penalty. That is, Jesus' death was sufficient and just and acceptable to God as the penalty for our sins, for our transgressions. And God quenches his wrath towards us so that we could be brothers and sisters under God. Our sins are wiped out from his sight and are removed and taken far away. 1 John 2.2 1 John 2.2 He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Further on in 1 John, 1 John 4.10 1 John 4.10 In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The actions that happened on the cross caused all of this due to Jesus' suffering. He assumed our identities and endured the retribution and the penalty and the judgment for us, that which is the curse of the law. Galatians 3.13 Galatians 3.13. 
Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus suffers as our substitute on the cross, bearing the record of our transgressions hung on the nails, the list of our transgressions, the full list of our crimes against God for which Jesus had to die. Matthew 27, 37. Matthew 27, 37. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Isaiah 53, 4-6. Isaiah 53, 4-6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to our own way. And the Lord has laid all on him the iniquity of us all. To be able to do all this, to atone for us, Christ had to come down from heaven to become a human. And that means there has to be an incarnation. Good, beautiful, and true. I've talked about this before. You all know these words. This is the triad of ancient literature. We still look for this in our stories, whether fiction or historical. It accounts for blockbuster movies, and it accounts for our heroes. We look to the history of redemption, and we know it to be good and beautiful and true. And we look to Jesus, and we know him to be good and beautiful and true. In fact, Jesus is the ultimate in each of those. God is incredibly good, God is unbelievably beautiful, and God is holy and absolutely true. As part of our faith, we believe that it is the Holy Spirit that reveals God to us in, a way, in such a way that we cannot resist the grace of God. We call this irresistible grace. And in that moment, I am convinced that the Holy Spirit pulls back a corner of the veil and with that, we can see the glow from this corner that is so overwhelmingly good and beautiful and true that we cannot do anything but accept Jesus and our faith in him. I want to give you a final short segue. So when God plans from eternity past to redeem his people for himself, the angels are not a part of that plan. They are part of the plan, but they are not included in knowing of the plan. In fact, the Father does not reveal some of the details, even to the Son. Though clearly, Jesus could know what the plan was. He was the absolutely obedient Son and chooses to let his Father do the planning. And he does his part in the history of redemption. And so the angels have no idea how God plans to redeem the world. 
And then something that is incredibly good, unbelievably beautiful, and absolutely true happens. And it is at this in, in this moment that the angels know what it is in God's plan, what it is God is going to do. In that instant, they know what will happen. And they see and they know that this is incredibly good, unbelievably beautiful, and absolutely true. And this happens, and we're going to read this again on, on Christmas Eve, but I'm going to read you this short little snippet right now. Luke 2, 12, Luke 2, 13 to 14. Luke 2, 13 to 14. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. In that moment, the Holy Spirit lifts the corner of the veil, and all can see the shine of the glory of God above the angels and the singing of praise to God. I hear this story, and I hear the Hallelujah Chorus by Handel in the background. Just before Christmas, 1981, ancient history, I was dating this beautiful young girl. We've been married for 37 years now. And we went with her grandmother to the Citrus College Choir's presentation of Handel's Messiah. It was a beautiful concert. And just as they start the Hallelujah Chorus, I said to Leanne, we need to stand up. She looks at me and she says, why? And in that instant, her grandmother stands up. And I stand up. And Leanne's trying to figure out what's going on. So she stands up. And everyone in the auditorium stands up at the Hallelujah Chorus. Not all of you know this story. The reason we stand at the Hallelujah Chorus is when this is presented to the King of England, when Handel does this, and is presented to the King of England, the King stands up. If the King is standing, everybody else stands. And it's become a tradition from that very event that when the Hallelujah Chorus plays, everyone stands up. And every time I hear that, the Holy Spirit lifts the corner of the veil again. Jesus is born an infant to the teenage Mary. And Jesus grows up and dies to pay for our rebellion against God, our sin, our unfaithfulness. Jesus takes away our guilt. Our sin is atoned for by Christ's death on the cross. God, faithful and true, sends Jesus to pay for our sins, to make us white as snow. And it is God who saves us. It is Jesus who pays our penalty. He is our Redeemer. And Jesus pays that penalty which belongs solely to all of us. Jesus takes it upon himself and himself alone. And the Holy Spirit reveals this to us. And we see the beauty and the power of God. And the Holy Spirit gives us the faith that we must have to believe in Jesus. And we get to spend eternity with God and the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, singing praise and honor and glory before them in the shining city on the hill. 
God loves us. I fail daily in who I should be as a Christian. God knows I'm not there yet. Again and again, I am on my knees, praying to God, relying on God, looking to God's mercy and love. I need that beauty and love and truth that is beyond all comprehension or understanding. And even in our failure, God still chooses us. God, our Daddy Father. Jesus has purchased our redemption. If you have not believed in Jesus yet, and you want that free gift of God, all you have to do is pray to accept Jesus as your Savior. Pray to Jesus and ask him to come into your heart. God's greatness will be there for all of us to see on the day of the Lord. We'll all witness his greatness and his splendor on that day. The shining city on the hill, the mountain of the Lord, the new Jerusalem. Indeed, we wait for that day for Jesus to come. Let's pray. Almighty God and Lord, you are amazing and incredible. We thank you for this beautiful day. We see the blessings you shower upon us. Lord, you are so amazing. You keep the universe in the palm of your hand, the galaxies spinning and the planets in their stately march across the sky, the march of time under your command, and you sent your Son to live here among us. Lord Jesus, you left your rightful place in heaven on the throne to be here among us, to die on a cross, bearing the horror of sin on yourself and carrying our sin far away. So that when your Father looks at us upon judgment in that final day, the Father will see you instead of us. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for being born in Bethlehem and living to die in our place, to redeem us, to save us. Lord, you are so amazing, and we love you, Lord. We bless you and honor. We praise you, the name above all names, the name of Jesus. Amen.